Okay, good afternoon everyone. Uh, my name is Michael, for those that don't know me. We're going to be um, having a look at Acts chapter 17 um, this afternoon. Um, what we love to do with Grace Church is work our way through uh, books of the Bible. Um, we believe that the Bible is God's words. Opening the Bible and reading it is the same thing as God speaking to us. Um, and so we love to just go through and let God set the agenda of what we're going to speak about. And so uh, we're currently in a series going through uh, the book of Acts, which tells the story of the early church. Um, after Jesus' death and resurrection, what were the disciples doing and what were the early Christians doing? And we, we, we're following that story. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17 in a few minutes. It's on page 1113 um, of the Bibles that are out and about. If you want to uh, get that out, open, 1113, it's Acts chapter 17. Now, I recently uh, changed jobs after, I was at my previous job for just shy of uh, 20 years, and then just three weeks ago, I started a new job. Um, I'm going to use that in a million sermon illustrations <laughs> over the next few years, but the one thing that I want to say about it today is, at my previous job, I, you know, as people were finding out that I was going to be moving, uh, more than one person said to me, oh, so have you found your dream job? To which I thought, well, I have been having dreams about it where I turn up naked or I get lost to school or I can't get in the building, but I don't think that, that's a nightmare. That, that's not what they're asking. So I was sort of saying, uh, no, right, well, wh wh why are you going for this job? And I was saying, well, you know, I've written a list and it seems like this job on the balance of probabilities may be slightly better than the one I'm in. And so that was like dissatisfying to them. And they were saying, oh, have you found your dream job? I'm like, why would you believe it unless you found your dream job? Um, and that reminded me of a few years ago, uh, we moved house. And again, I was talking to somebody at work about it, just about the, the, the stress of moving house. And said, oh, so have you found your forever home? And I was like, well, I uh, don't know. And they were like, oh, so you're saying you do it all again? And I thought you said it was stressful. I was like, uh, no, I'm not saying that. I've just moved out, so that's all I'm saying. Now, what I should have said was, oh, let me tell you about my real forever home. But I, wasn't, I was just really feeling awkward and wanting to get out of the conversation, so I never thought about that until I thought about using this as an example. But there we go, that was a missed opportunity. Um, but the idea there of like, why would you be moving if you haven't found your dream home? You like, found the one. Um, now, when you think about finding the one, we're most often thinking about a partner, like a husband or wife. And so, you know what I've done? I've hit Google up for how to find the one. How do you know that somebody <laughs> is the one? Um, and so now, all my adverts on social media are assuming that I'm somebody looking for a soulmate, and I'm getting served up all these um, inappropriate, well, not inappropriate, <laughs> just not suitable. I'm not the target market for these adverts for dating sites and things like that. Anyway, this was an article that I read by Renata Gomez. She said, finding the one means discovering that one person among billions who's your soulmate, your perfect match, a person sent from heaven above to complete your life. Hmm, when I read that, I thought, this sermon writes itself here. Um, listen to that. A person sent from heaven to, above to complete your life. Let's remember that because I'm going to come back to that later. Um, that's how she defined the one. But then in a slightly disappointing finish to the article, um, well, she did say, don't worry if you haven't found the one yet. You're not necessarily condemned to a life of misery. You might be, but not necessarily. <laughs> this is how she finished, though, which I was quite disappointed with. The person you're with right now is the one for you, until they're not. Then you go and find the second one. Now, if you, if, if you know me, I like logic, I like maths. That doesn't sound like the one. That sounds like two or more than one. I'm like... 
by all means, if you want to start talking about the two or the many, but don't call it the one if it's not one. Anyway, that's just my personal disagreement with Renata Gomez. Anyway, there was loads of other articles, like 30 signs that you've found the one, 15 things to check if you're unsure that he's the one, and that, this sort of thing. But I was looking at this on Friday night, and Michelle had just sent me the, the link to that Francis Chan video. And so I thought, I'm not going to waste some of that red time reading these uh, articles. So I didn't read all the lists, but the general gist is, don't worry about finding the one. The one may not exist, but just in case, here's a list of things for you to agonise over to, just, to think whether this person is the one. I'll give you the headline now, just so you know where I'm going with this. You'll have guessed it if you've been around church. Or, like a partner, like a soulmate, a job, a dream job, a forever house, um, a family, whatever it is, won't make your life complete, but the one does exist. Renata Gomez was right in a way that there has been a person sent down from heaven to complete your life. It's just that that person isn't on like whatever dating app is going. It, that person was 2,000 years ago. Jesus is the one. That's what I'm saying this afternoon. So if you don't hear anything else this afternoon, if you've heard that, you know what I'm saying. I hope they just flesh that out and uh, help you to realize why that's good news. Um, as we go through this afternoon. Now, what we're going to read here, we're following somebody called Paul, um, who was, uh, he'd gone from somebody who was really against the message of Christianity. Um, he had a powerful encounter with Jesus, and then he goes around setting up churches. Um, and this part of the book of Acts is following him on those journeys. And he was, last week when we were looking at it, he was in a, a city called Philippi, and he's spoken to some people, people have become Christians, but it caused a, a bit of trouble. And he ends up in prison, um, and then he gets released from prison, and they leave to go on to the next place. Uh, previously, he's had a vision of a man from Macedonia, which is a sort of region, asking for Paul to come over and help them. And so he went to Philippi first, and now he's travelled approximately 100 miles uh, to Thessalonica, which is the capital of Macedonia. So this is where he's been headed to, and he's had this vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us. He's been wanting to get to the capital, and that's where he is now um, in Thessalonica. Now, what he tends to do, Paul, when he arrives, is he starts with Jewish people who are in these cities, and he starts speaking to them. And in Philippi, we saw there wasn't a synagogue. There wasn't enough Jewish people there to have a synagogue. He just went and looked for a place of prayer where a few Jewish people were meeting. In Thessalonica, there must be enough Jews to have a synagogue because that's where he goes first, and that's what we're going to see here. So I'm going to read... Um, the first nine verses of Acts chapter 17. When Paul and his companions had passed through Am Amphipol Amphipolis and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did quite a number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But the other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. 
Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. So from this, I've got, like, this doesn't always work nicely for those of you who take notes when I'm preaching, but it does today. There's three points and they all begin with M, right? Are you ready for this? Because I was chuffed with this when I came up with it. Messiah, message and mess. I want to call the last one trouble, but mess began with M and it sounded a bit like it. So there we go. That's where we're going. Paul's message was about Jesus being the Messiah. Then we're going to look at the method that he had in um, sharing that message and then the mess that that me message caused. We start off with Messiah and that's what, that's what Paul's message is when he goes into the synagogue and starts speaking to the, the Jewish people in Thessalonica. He starts talking to them about Messiah. Now, the word Messiah, its meaning is anointed one. And by anointed one, they're referring back to a history throughout God's people in the Old Testament where they would anoint people with oil to set them apart, mark them out for a special purpose of God. So it's probably most memorable in the kings of Israel. So Saul is the first king of Israel and Samuel the prophet is told to go and anoint him with oil. And so he anoints Saul as king. And there's even bits later on where David, who's going to be the next king, says, I won't do anything against the Lord's anointed because Saul has been anointed with oil. He's, been, he's the anointed one. He's been set apart uh, by God for this role as king. David then ends up being anointed as the next king. Now, throughout this history of these anointed ones, um, the prophecies that have been given to God's people is that they should be waiting for, like, the ultimate anointed one, like, the anointed one, the Messiah. And so the Jewish people were waiting for one day the arrival of the Messiah, the ultimate anointed one. They were waiting for like another prophet like Moses, but even better than Moses, like the ultimate Moses. Another king, not just like David, but even better than David, the ultimate David. They're waiting for this ultimate anointed one, the one, the Messiah. That's who they're all waiting for. And Paul comes to them saying, look, the Messiah is here. He's arrived. He's been. He says, we're told, he says two things about the Messiah, this ultimate one, the one that they were all waiting for. First, it says in, in verse 3 that he was explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. It's clear from um, when the disciples were interacting with Jesus and they started to believe, oh, Jesus is this one. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. That they had a different expectation of what the Messiah would come to do than Jesus, the things that Jesus had actually come to do. There seemed to be an expectation that because the Jews were... Um, occupied by Rome and oppressed by Rome, that the Messiah, when this ultimate anointed one came, that he would conquer the Romans or drive them out in some way and restore their nation to like the great place that they'd had in the past. So the idea that the Messiah would die or suffer would have been bizarre to them. Like if you'd said, oh, the Messiah's got something to do with death, they'd say, yeah, death to the enemies, but not death to the Messiah, that would have been bizarre. And so Paul is showing them from the scriptures, like from their own, from what we would call the Old Testament, from their own um, holy writings, that the Messiah, it was always prophesied that the Messiah would suffer, die, and rise from the dead. The Messiah had come to conquer their enemies, but not the sort of temporal enemies of the, the Romans. He'd come to conquer their ultimate enemies. The things that could never be defeated, the enemies of sin and death, he came to conquer them. And that's what Paul's saying to them here. He's reasoning with them. He's showing them um, that that's what the Messiah was always prophesied to do. 
Now, Jesus did this himself. So in Luke chapter 24, uh, Jesus had risen from the dead and he uh, meets with the disciples. Um, he meets two disciples who were walking um, to a nearby town. They don't recognize that it's him at first. And they're talking about, um, they're saying, look, haven't you heard what's happened? This person, Jesus, has died. And they say, oh, look, we thought he was going to be the one. We thought he was the Messiah. And Jesus says this to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Paul's doing the same thing here that Jesus had done just after his resurrection. Saying, look, you didn't get it. This was always a prophecy. He's taking them back through all the prophecies of the Old Testament, showing that this was always the plan, that the Messiah would suffer and die to free them from sin and death. If the Messiah, if the one, the anointed one, the ultimate one that they were waiting for had come to lead like a physical revolution, then his death would have been the end of it. It would have been failure. But the actual Messiah came to deal with our sin. And so his suffering and death was the victory that allows our sin to be forgiven and the power of death to be conquered. So Paul's message to them is, look, this is the Messiah. Look, I'll show you, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, had to suffer and die. And then the second thing that he's telling them, which I've already just been assuming in what I'm saying, is that the Messiah is Jesus. If you look at the second half of verse 3, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. So he's saying, look, the wait is over. The one we've all been waiting for for years, the one that we've thought will be coming from God to put everything right, he's actually been. I can tell you who it is. It's Jesus. He didn't only just fulfill the things that they were thinking he would do. He's fulfilled far more than they could have ever imagined. That's Paul's message. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, when Jesus was uh, walking around and um, was speaking to his disciples, um, he asked his disciples at one point in Matthew 16, who do people say that I am? And Peter, who's one of the disciples, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. So I don't know whether you were aware of this. I think sometimes people think that the name Jesus Christ is just like his first name, Jesus, surname, Christ. That's not what it is. Christ is just another, the, the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. So when Peter says, um, when Jesus says, um, who do people say that I am? And Peter replies to him, you are the Christ. He's saying, um, what we're saying is, you are the Messiah. Saying Jesus Christ is saying Jesus Messiah. One writer said that that's how the term Messiah works. When we say Jesus Christ, we should be thinking in our mind, Jesus the Messiah, the promised priest, king and prophet. Jesus, the one who was anointed by God to bring about our redemption. This Messiah is Jesus who has been set aside by God, anointed by God, the ultimate redeemer, the ultimate anointed one, the ultimate Christ. There is a Jesus Christ, we sometimes just say that in passing. But when we're adding that name Christ to the name Jesus, we're saying all of that. He's the Messiah, he's the ultimate one, he's the one that we need, he's the one that's come to do, put everything wrong, he's come to put that right. And so that takes me back to where I started with those daft examples about the one. Jesus is the Messiah, not just for them, those Jews in Thessalonica, he's the Messiah for us. For everyone in here, Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Now, the Jews had the word Messiah, and they knew they were waiting for somebody who they were referring to as the Messiah. might be less obvious to us, but what is that one thing that you're waiting for that you think will solve all your problems? 
What's that one thing that you think, oh, I just really need that. Then I'd be sorted. The thing that you need, the person that you need, the one that you're waiting for is Jesus. Jesus who suffered for you, who died from you, who rise, rose from the dead on your behalf. Now, it might be that you're in a situation where it doesn't make much sense, where you think, look, um, I'm desperate for money. I can't afford my bills. I, like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. How does Jesus solve that? Maybe it, may, it might not make sense to be thinking, why, like, how can Jesus solve that problem? It also didn't make sense when Jesus was declaring himself to be Messiah, when Paul was saying he was the Messiah here. It's because it's better than what we think we need. We think we just need like a, a bit of assistance, like a leg up. Actually, like a completely changed heart, a completely new life. We think we need like a few tweaks to our lifestyle to make us more comfortable. But Jesus is offering a, a new, full, abundant life that lasts forever. It's like on a different level to what we think we need. Like I think, oh, I need a bit of a solution to this thing that I'm worrying about. Whereas Jesus comes to offer a peace that surpasses understanding, that can be um, experienced in any situation, no matter how difficult. It's like on a totally different level to what I think I need. The story of the entire Jewish history, the Jewish people, had been leading towards one thing, this coming Messiah. Like, what's the story of your life pointing towards? might be money, it might be a family, it might be marriage, it might be success, however you want to define that. You know, if you, if you grew up being told the story that you, like, you should work hard at school so you can get a good job, so you can earn a decent amount of money, that's going to shape your life in a certain way. If you've grown up reading multiple lists of how to find your soulmate, then that's going to shape your expectations in a certain way. And what I'm saying to you today is the same thing that what Paul is saying to the uh, Jews in that synagogue in uh, Thessalonica 2,000 years ago. I'm saying that whatever there is that the story that shaped your life, the true desire that's behind that is fulfilled in Jesus. Security, acceptance, affection, love, freedom, comfort, hope, all of those things, Jesus is the one you've been looking for. He's the Christ, he's the, he's the ultimate anointed one, he's the one. That's Paul's message. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one we've been looking for. Secondly, I just wanted to look at the, the method of which Paul, like how Paul's sharing this. I love the way it's described. He goes there on three Sabbath days. He reasons with them from the scriptures. He explains and proves that the Messiah had to suffer. And it says uh, some of the Jews were persuaded, along with a few prominent women and uh, God-fearing Greeks. He's reasoning, he's explaining, he's discussing, he's persuading. We've said a few times in Acts that Paul's mission was to preach the gospel. And Ben said a couple of times already that to preach the gospel just means proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And it can happen in a variety of ways. Later on in Paul's life, he writes a couple of letters to this church um, called 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 5, he reminds the people who he's writing to, he says, remember that our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. So there was obviously the public speaking that Paul did that we read about in Acts here, but he said they lived among them, like there was also personal conversations. There was public speaking and personal conversations. 
there was words and then there was also the power of the Holy Spirit. There was a lot of things going on in which Paul was proclaiming or preaching the gospel. And one of the ways that he was doing that was by reasoning, persuading, discussing, explaining. And that's a type of conversation and discourse that is not very common in our current culture. Like the principle that it's working on is you say something, maybe I disagree, I ask you to explain what you mean, you ask me to explain my point of view, I ask you questions, you ask me questions, we discuss it, maybe I change my mind, maybe you change my mind, maybe neither of us changed our mind, um, but we at least understand a bit more about what the other person believes. Whereas our current culture works a bit more on, um, I'm going to shout what I think at you, and if I even get the impression that you don't like it, you're worse than Hitler. Like, that's, the, that's the sort of current um, debating culture that we have. Well, maybe it wasn't a million miles away from what Paul experienced, because they do stir up a mob and start a riot after what he said. But I love that idea of reasoning and discussing and explaining. Like, we believe in that kind of thing at Grace Church. We love to discuss, thinking about what we believe and why. We love to read the Bible and talk about what it means. Like, if you're not a Christian here, um, we love to have you as part of everything that we do. We want to talk about what we believe and we want to discuss what you believe and hear what you think. We want to ask you questions, we want to answer your questions. We're not interested in insulting people, we're not interested in just shouting about what we believe. We love to discuss the big questions of life, whatever your beliefs might be. Now, yes, we'd love to persuade you to change your mind and, and, and come to believe what we believe because that's not because I want an argument, that's because, as Ben said the other week, we wanted to so-called convert people because they think it's the best news possible and it's for your great joy. But if that takes a long time or even if that never happens, like, that's fine. Let's just have the discussion. Like, it, it, that, that's what we're here to do. And if you're a Christian, let's enter into this. We don't need to live with a fear of difficult questions or a fear of those discussions coming up or things that you don't understand. It's all right to ask questions, to discuss things, to explore things. We want to understand what we believe and why, and questions and discussion are okay. That's part of Paul's method here. And then, this message that he's delivered by um, discussing and reasoning with them from the Scriptures causes a bit of mess, it causes a bit of trouble. In a similar pattern to we've seen elsewhere that Paul goes, um, there's a common response. Some people believe, and some people kick off. Some experience great joy because of Paul's message. Some get angry about it. And here we're told that some of the Jews who presumably were in the synagogue listening to this and weren't persuaded by Paul get jealous. It's not really opposition to what he's saying on this occasion, although sometimes it is, but it, the jealous of the response that Paul's getting, the jealous that some people have um, believed what he's saying. And so they want to run him out of town to get some bad characters who were going to start a mob and, and, and create a riot. They're, they're accused, um, where is it about, where it says about causing trouble? Yeah, verse 6. They're accused, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. They're accused of being troublemakers. And in one sense, that is right. At, trouble has followed them everywhere they've gone. They're not going there to cause trouble, but the trouble's caused everywhere they go because the gospel message stirs things up. 
Christianity challenges the status quo. It stirs up your life. It stirs up the lives of those around you. And so we tend to see that the response is either joy for those who believe or anger from those who don't. You don't really see a lot of indifference. In fact, if you do have an indifferent response, it potentially shows that you haven't quite understood the message. We can and we should expect that the gospel may cause some trouble in your own life, in your relationships, in um, other people you interact with. Now, it's a good type of trouble because it's getting to the root of problems that we experience. Like the cause trouble in Philippi, why was the trouble caused? Because there was this slave girl who is a, like a demonic oppression, was abused and oppressed by humans as well. And Paul set her free from that. That's absolutely brilliant when we're looking at it. But it caused trouble for the owners because they had now lost a source of income. And that's what caused it all to kick off. It was a wonderful miracle. When we look at it, we think that should be a cause of rejoicing. But it caused trouble because some people didn't like it. It was the same with Jesus. You know, it happens all the time. He heals somebody who's paralyzed or heals somebody who's been born blind. Should be great rejoicing. And there is from the person who's received it. But then there's other people really not happy about it because they didn't like the way Jesus did it. So it's not like Jesus is going around causing trouble by slapping somebody in the face. Jesus is going around bringing great joy to people, setting people free. But that's stirring up trouble because some people don't like that. And it's the same for Paul here. It's good trouble, but that doesn't mean that it's, it's not difficult. We can see here that it is difficult. Back in that letter that Paul writes to these uh, people, he says, you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. You know, they encounter real suffering here. These Christians, the first few Christians in Thessalonica, encounter suffering. But Paul's remembering years later that they did it because they experienced joy from the Holy Spirit. It's possible to experience joy in the midst of suffering but through the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done. So when we encounter this sort of trouble, what should our response be? Well, firstly, we shouldn't lose hope. It's not a threat to God's plan. It wasn't then, it isn't now. It's not a sign that we're doing something wrong. Paul experienced it. He wasn't doing anything wrong here, but the trouble uh, came up. What we should do to respond to it is to pray for boldness to continue. Back in the letter that Paul writes to them, he says, we had previously suffered, he's recalling when he came to um, Thessalonica, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, that was a previous chapter, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared the gospel in the face of strong opposition. So Paul's gone on from Philippi, where they've essentially been run out of town there, and he's going to the next place, and what's he doing on the way there? He's asking God to help them to do the same thing again. And he says that God did help them to declare the message in the face of strong opposition. And so when we face trouble, whether it's, like a, whether it's going to be a riot coming knocking down the door of your house like it is here, is probably unlikely at this present time. But whatever sort of trouble it might stir up in your life, pray that we continue to dare to tell people the gospel, even if we do face strong opposition. The accusation is that they're causing trouble by proclaiming Jesus as king rather than Caesar. That's like right at the end, verse, halfway through verse 7 to the end. They say, they're all, sorry, they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. They're accused of defying Caesar's decrees. Now, the Jews who started this riot 
they're not bothered about Caesar's honour. Like, they don't think Caesar deserves to be called as king. It's just a convenient accusation. Saying, look, these people are saying there's another king. Jesus is not saying Caesar's king. They're saying Jesus is king. And if that's right. They're spot on. Jesus is the king of kings. This is another way of what we were saying earlier. He's the Messiah. He's the one. He's the ultimate king. Any other kings you want, Jesus is the king above those. That's not just a threat to Caesar as king, but it's a threat to the selfish human heart when we want to set ourselves up as king. And that's why these people are jealous and bothered about it in the first place and starting up this riot. To say Jesus is the Messiah is to say that there's a king, the ultimate king. In that letter that Paul writes to these people later on, he says, they tell, these are people who've come from Thessalonica to, to speak to Paul and give him a report, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their response to receiving the message that Jesus was the Messiah was to turn away from the other things they were serving and serve him. That's the response to discovering the Messiah. We find everything we want, everything we need in him, and so we pledge our allegiance to him. We're no longer loyal or serving um, other idols or other kings. I just want to finish by looking at this guy, Jason, who's mentioned. He just pops up as if we're supposed to know who he is, really. But he's only ever mentioned here. This is the only um, story, the inf only information that we have about him. Jason, um, it's supposedly like a lot of Jews known as Joshua, if they were living in Greek-speaking places, took the name Jason. So it's believed that he was one of these Jews who was in the synagogue, who heard Paul's message and became a believer. So Jason is somebody who's heard what Paul's saying. He believes that in Jesus he's found the Messiah. He's found the one he's been waiting for. He believes that Jesus suffered and died in his place for his sins and was uh, risen from the dead. And so his response seems to have been that he's offered hospitality to Paul and Silas. It seems like he's welcomed them and, and had them staying in his house. And because of that, he ends up in trouble. When the mob arrives at his house, Paul and Silas don't seem to be there. So they drag Jason out, drag him in front of the officials. He's allowed out on bail. He's not going to be sure what's going to happen to him. Now, what's he thinking there? We don't know because we're not, we're not told. I'm sure he didn't like it. I'm sure it wasn't a nice experience. But... He didn't abandon his newfound faith because the only other place Jason's mentioned is in one of Paul's letters where he crops up in one of the greetings and he's described as Paul's co-worker. Years later, Jason's still uh, believing in Jesus, working alongside Paul, sharing that message. When Paul says that people experience the joy in Thessalonica, experience the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of severe suffering. Jason is one of the people he's talking about. Becomes a Christian, like, almost straight away, he's in the midst of severe suffering. But he experiences the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And years later, he's still serving Jesus, because he found the one. Now, if you look around this room, you don't have to do that literally, but around this room, you'll see loads of Jason. You'll see people who've heard about Jesus heard that Jesus is the one that they're looking for and they've believed that. They believe that Jesus suffered for their sins, died in their place, rose again, conquering death. If you look around, you'll see people who've faced resistance, who've encountered trouble. Conflict. That might have been conflict with strangers, but it might have been conflict with friends or even family. 
look around the room that you'll see people that because they trust in Jesus have suffered from false accusations or assumptions or jealousy or all sorts of things. But you'll also see people who've experienced the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of that suffering. That's what Jason experienced. That's what the church in Thessalonica experienced. That's what it was. That's what that church was. That's what Grace Church is now 2,000 years later. A group of people pledging allegiance to Jesus, the Messiah and King. So I'm just going to pray in a minute. Just before I do, what I want us to do is just we'll have a, just a moment of silence. And just in your mind, like if you want to, obviously you can think about whatever you like. But in your mind, I would encourage you to just um, dwell on just a simple three-word phrase which is Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. And in that, if you're, you're saying that internally to yourself, you, when you're saying the word Lord, just remember that he's the, you're declaring that he's the king. You're putting himself, by calling him Lord, you're putting yourself under his rule. You're pledging allegiance to him. By saying Christ, we're remembering that Christ is the Messiah. We're declaring that everything we need is found in him. We look elsewhere, we remind ourselves that all we need to do is look to him. He gives us everything we need. And by obviously putting Jesus' name in there, we're saying that that's where those two things come together. It's Jesus who's our Lord. It's Jesus who's the one we're looking for. So I'll just give us a moment. And what I'm going to be doing is just thinking over that phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, and reflecting on what it means.